Our first scripture passage is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, read from the English Standard Version. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from, who, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. One of the most common experiences in the modern world is discontent. Discontent begins at an early age when you realize you get to the end of the Christmas presents and you wonder, is that all? And it does not end. You can be a Super Bowl winner and say, is that all? You can get towards the end of your life with lots and lots of money and say, is that all? Why are we so discontent? And it doesn't seem that Christianity offers much help, at least not the way many Christians are, because we also deal with discontent. And part of the problem is we live in the modern world and we're a product of the cultural environment in which we have been born and raised. And that cultural environment is the modern West. The modern West is born to create discontent because it has wrong emphases. And if you look at it, it begins like this. It begins back with the Enlightenment and the existential philosophy that was born out of that with people like Nietzsche and others, all of whom basically came to these simple conclusions. The only thing we can be sure of is the material world. It's what we can observe and measure. So the only thing we have to go on is our bodies and our mind. That's it. No spiritual side. That same set of philosophies that influenced all of your colleges and now high schools from the 60s on said the only thing that matters is the now. Because we can't be sure and we can't prove that there's anything after the now. You get to the end of life, the end. And as all of these philosophical movements have spread, it's also this understanding that the only way I can know what is good or right or true is me. It's the subjective world that we live in. There is no such thing as absolute truth. We can't prove that. So the only thing you have is me now in my body and mind. Which is exactly why you could see in our modern world emphasis on things like sex, right? Because my satisfaction in my body and mind matter now or our emphasis and fear and and stress on our physical bodies in general. Our health, being fit, beauty, takes up so much of our time and energy and even worries, because this is what we have. And it's our pursuit of financial success, material wealth. These things because we realize we've got to do it all now. There isn't anything else. What we realize is if there's going to be contentment, I must find it on my own. 
And it's based on my circumstances now. My health, my relationships, my wealth, my satisfactions now. Which of course is gonna birth our discontent. Because we're always striving and clamoring to be heard and noticed, because we have to build up achievements, be approved by people, whatever it is we're really after to find our contentment. We're driven by fears and anxieties of our bodies breaking down, failure at the things we've put all of our eggs in that basket, and what if they, we topple it over? What if we don't make the team, don't make the college, don't get the raise? Or desperate fears of losing the things that are most important to us, our kids or our bodies or our freedoms. And so many people turn to despair. It's why we have one of the most psychologically depressed cultures ever. Because we realize pretty quickly either we're not where we want to be and where all of our peers are, or the things we have put our life in are simply meaningless. And even those of us who aren't quite that dire, we're generally discontent dissatisfied, because even when we get the things we want, we realize it doesn't last, it doesn't really satisfy deeply. Our Christianity often buys into this. It buys into this cultural narrative that says there isn't anything more, and our circumstances are the main and only thing that matter. And we see this because many of us actually even come to church looking simply to better our lives. Like, gosh, I need some help with some of these you know, moral foibles that I have. So if I go to church, that'll help me out. Or we figure if we go to church, we'll get some information on how to correct our marriages or be better employers or employees. But in that process, we're simply working on external circumstances as if that's the only thing that lasts or matters. And our prayer life is not much different. What do we pray for most? At least what do I pray for most? Circumstances right? Health, job, something happening in life, my kids' success. It's always externals that I seem to focus on in my prayers. Maybe you're different than me in that. And if you are, then you're like Paul. Paul in Ephesians prays for the Ephesian church, and when he does, he does not focus on their externals. He doesn't say anything about their circumstances. Instead, he focuses intensely on their inner transformation, their spiritual and internal experience of God. His prayer is, I want you to know Christ's love and experience God fully. That's it. Listen to the beginning of this prayer. Paul begins the prayer in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, and then he goes on further. His prayer is talking to God the Father, addressing God the Creator. It's for them, and he has some petitions in there that I want us to look at. And he concludes with a doxology. He follows basically the form of a collect that we do in Anglicanism like the prayer for purity. You address God, you ask your petition, and you conclude with a thanksgiving or doxology. But this morning, I just want to look at the petitions, the main meat that comes after these verses. 
verses 16 through 19, where Paul lays out his prayer for the Ephesians, because if it's his prayer for the Ephesian church, it would probably be his prayer for this church, meaning Christians at any point. So what does the main petitions in this prayer, what do they say to us, and what are their implications for us in our lives? So let's go ahead and break into these. Verse 16, the second half, is where he gets to his actual petition. The first part of his prayer, his petition to God the Father for the Ephesians is, to be, is that you be strengthened with power through his, God's spirit, in your inner being. He goes on to talk about Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. What's interesting here is he's talking to believers and he says, I'm praying that the spirit works in you, that Christ dwells in you. But if you know from Christianity elsewhere, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Spirit already does dwell in you. Christ already has taken up residence in you. So why is he praying for them to have the Spirit working in them or Christ to dwell in them as if he doesn't? Well, it's, it's continuation. You see, the instant you enter into faith in Christ, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, admitting you're a sinner and saying, he alone is my Savior, God takes up residence in you. And the rest of life, and in fact, into eternity, is dwelling in that, digging deeper. And that's what his prayer is. He wants them to continue and to deepen, to live from that experience of God dwelling in them. And notice his prayer, as I mentioned earlier, is for your inner being, that the Spirit would do something in your inner being. The inner being is the center of a person. The ancient philosophers would have said your heart and mind and will. A modern psychologist might say the self, your identity. If I were going to say your inner being, I mean that part of you that's you. How you understand yourself. And why is it that Paul wants to talk about that? Because the inner being, the inner self is what drives your identity your motivations, your goals. It's the place where change and transformation, if it's going to happen, happens in our lives. And it's the focus of the Spirit's work. It's the primary place where the Spirit of God does His work. It's actually in our inner beings. And Paul's prayer is that the Spirit would transform and renovate your life through His Spirit in your inner being. One commentator summarized it this way. Peter O'Brien, he wrote, the more the Spirit empowers their lives, the greater will be their transformation into the likeness of Christ. As the Spirit enters their life more and more, and they're tapping into that, the greater will be the transformation of their life into the likeness of Christ. Paul's prayer is first that they would be strengthened with the Spirit in their inner being, that something internally, and I don't mean like inside my organs, would be happening. And it has a corollary. It's that Christ, he says this in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you would be rooted and grounded in love. So just some of those words and the metaphors that are applied there. To be rooted is an agricultural term, talking about your roots going down further. This is uh, akin to Psalm 1, where the man of God who seeks after the word of God is deeply rooted. And the second one, grounded, is actually an architectural terminology. It's laying a firm foundation. 
So he's using agriculture and architecture to say, you need to be rooted deeply in Christ's love, and you need to be founded firmly on Christ's love. That everything about you needs to be built and growing out of Christ and Christ's love for you. And this is emphatically laid out when he uses the word dwell here. Now, the word dwell is a very common Old Testament word for God dwelling with the people, but the idea in the Old Testament was actually God tabernacling with the people, which meant a tent. And there is a New Testament equivalent to that where God tents with us. The Spirit of God dwells in us, takes up residence in us, tents with us. But the interesting thing is Paul uses a word that takes it a step further. That doesn't just mean a temporary dwelling, like a tent is a temporary dwelling. It's not just God's going to pitch his tent camp at your house. Rather, God is building his house, is the term that's used. Building a permanent structure, a stone, a brick structure, something that's not going to be taken down. God, through Christ, is building a permanent structure in you. He wants to dwell in you, to take up residence inside your soul and live there forever, not just for the time being. And this sounds very similar to what C.S. Lewis talks about in Mere Christianity. You've heard this quote here before, but it's such a great one that lays out how this works out. When you enter into faith in Christ and begin that process of discipleship, God begins working, and this is what it's like. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. Paul's prayer is that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And I need to be asking at every point of every day and in the decisions I make, is my life being built upon Christ? Is Christ building his house in my life? Is my identity, are the aims of my life, are they built on Christ? Are my politics my money, my career choices, my time being built on Christ? Is he dwelling in me and building up the house he desires? You see, Paul's prayer for that inner life is that God wants to work in us. He wants to work in our inner beings, in our souls, in our eternal self, in that part of us that is here now and will be forever. And Paul's prayer for our inner life, for the inner life of the Ephesians, reflects his own practical theology. I'm going to jump us over to 2 Corinthians, another book, a letter written by Paul, where Paul explains his own way of thinking. And this is what he says. He's talking about suffering, persecution, and facing death. And Paul faced some pretty horrible circumstances in life starvation, beaten, beatings, chained, uh, nearly dead. They tried to execute him multiple times and it just didn't work. And here's what he has to say about that. 
so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. We look not to the things that are seen. We don't look to our circumstances, to the now only, but to the things that are unseen, to the spiritual world, to our inner being, to eternity. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul understands that what we need to realize and believe is that the things that we put all of our weight in are temporary. If the things we put our weight in are not Christ. And God, God wants to work on that part of us which will last. God is more desperate for our spiritual well-being than our circumstantial prosperity. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about our circumstances. He does. There's passage upon passage that talk about that. But he cares most about that lasting part of us. He wants our soul. He wants that us-ness. He wants our eternal selves. The part of us that will be here for billions upon billions of years, not just a few decades. Because he wants our souls and our eternity more than our happiness or ease over 30 or 50 or 70 years. And so this is Paul's prayer, that God would work in your inner being. And the very essence of what his prayer comes to is in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18 and 19, he prays that the Ephesians would know something, that they would know the love of Christ. That's it. That's the sum of his prayer. The focal point of his prayer, his main petition is, I want you Ephesians to know the love of Christ. You know what's interesting about that is his prayer? It's the same prayer he had prayed a couple chapters earlier. If you were with us in this whole series, our second week looking at Ephesians, we looked at a prayer of Paul for the Ephesian church. And Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church was that they would know something, know the hope to which they had been called, their worth in God's eyes, and the power that was theirs for eternity in God. Basically, to know God. And then he prays again, I want you to know God's love for you. I want you to know Christ's love for you. That's the central petition. Why does he pray this two different times? Why does he even pray this at all for Christians? You know, the whole time he's been praising them for being such great Christians, believing in Christ, putting their trust in him. Why is he praying this? It must be that the Ephesians, like us, forget we lose sight of God's love for us. Or we fail to live from that perspective, from the perspective of God's love for us in Christ. We get distracted by everything else around us, desires that we have here and now, and then we quickly lose sight that God loves us. That's his prayer. Know that. Know that again and again and again and again. And that's where the love of Christ is actually defined in the very opening of this little passage, in verse 15, when he's starting in on this prayer, Paul says, for this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees. For this reason, what's the for this reason there for? It's actually looking back to chapter two. 
And then he goes in some run-on sentences and loses track of where he's going. So if you look at the whole thing, you realize for this reason is back to Ephesians 2. And what was Ephesians 2? The gospel. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive in Christ. It is by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift from God, not by work so that no one can boast. For this reason, I bow my knee. And my prayer is that you would know the love of Christ. The love of Christ you've already entered into because Christ died for you, a sinner. In other words, the love of Christ could be a parallel for what we talk about here as the gospel. The love of Christ, the gospel are the same thing. And Paul goes back to this prayer because he's suggesting they forget. They lose sight of it. They fail to live out of it. And honestly, it's why we as a church go back again and again and again to that simple message. We are sinners. Christ died for us. And Paul suggests with the words that surround it that you can spend your entire life trying to grasp Christ's love for you and you won't have enough time he lays it out very clearly in his prayer. If we read the whole thing, in the, in the, the petitions there, he says in verse 18 and into 19, that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In other words, the love of Christ is immeasurable and unfathomable. It's like measuring the size of the universe, the breadth and length and height and depth. So let's do a little exercise of measuring the universe. Those of you who are physicists will be far above what I'm going to do here. But let's, let's take like just a picture of, of the earth in relation to the entire universe. So you guys can't see this unless you have eagle vision. But there's the Earth, and it's in a solar system. That solar system is part of the Milky Way galaxy. It's part of a supercluster of galaxies that is part of the universe. But let's, let's take it a step at a time. We're on Earth, right? Right now, we're located on Earth. Where are we on there? Yeah, it's under the cloud. That's right. I mean, do you know how small we are, right? How small are we? And yet, the Earth rotates around the sun in our solar system. We're just now getting to the edge of our solar system with our, with our stuff, our NASA stuff. But our solar system is one central star. That sun is one star in the Milky Way galaxy. So we're, yeah, somewhere right down in there, one of those little stars. There's the Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy in the known universe is not even able to be seen. The known universe is massive. The language they use is actually incomprehensible. 46 billion light years across. Let me try and break that down with some bad math. A light year is how far you can travel at the speed of light. The speed of light, just estimating, I'm rounding for those of you who actually know what it is, is 700 million miles per hour. If you traveled at 700 million miles per hour for an entire year, that's a light year, to get across the universe, traveling at 700 million miles per hour, 
would take you 45 billion years, which is 500 million lifetimes if you live to be 90. 500 million 90-year-old lifetimes traveling 700 miles per hour to get across. Unfathomable, immeasurable. And this is just a cross. Paul says a cross and height and, and depth. He's talking about all three dimensions. Billions upon billions of years to measure the universe traveling at the speed of light. That's what Christ's love for you is like. You can spend your life plumbing the depths of it and not get to the bottom. And it's why as you grow in your understanding of the love of Christ, it gets deeper and richer and truer. Much like a long-lasting marriage is deeper and richer and truer than initial infatuation, When Sarah and I were first dating in college, I remember having those butterflies that you get when you're first dating somebody, and we would skip class, don't ever do that if you're in college, to spend time with one another because we were in love, right, or so we thought. But how much different, how much richer is a 30 or 40 or 50 year marriage where there is commitment over time and sacrifice and sickness, and surgeries, and celebrations, and milestones, and suffering, and laughter, that 50-year marriage is a much deeper love than college infatuation. It's much better. That's the direction to be heading with Christ. Not initial infatuation, but deeper, and deeper, and deeper. And that's Paul's prayer, that you would know the love of Christ more and more and more. And you know, the indication from this and from other passages of Scripture is it's not just that we will spend our entire lifetimes contemplating the love of Christ and His love for us, it's actually eternity. And guess what? Eternity is pretty long. And when you get to the far end of eternity, there's another farther end and you will still be unfolding another layer of God's love for you in Christ. Another, whoa, really? Oh, that's great. And we begin now. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It is personal and experiential. To know in the Bible is intimate and relational, and it's experiential. It is not just head knowledge. So it's like talking about this. <laughs> the experience of understanding God's love for us cannot just be an intellectual exercise any more than chocolate can be an intellectual exercise. Okay? Chocolate, here we go. Here is some of the chemical properties of chocolate. Theobromine, something phenosomethingalamine, caffeine, I know that one. Bitter, volatile compounds that are stimulants. One of them is a chemical organic compound that's a neurotransmitter. You combine fats, sugars, dairy, cacao to form a polymorph crystal, right? 
And that polymorph crystal, if done right, is glossy and firm and has a snap, but at a certain temperature, it melts and distributes. It has uh, chemical effects. It releases endorphins. It has a stimulant effect. It's a source of antioxidants. It actually lowers bad cholesterol. Oh, and it's also descriptively sweet and yet bitter, crisp but yet creamy. Isn't that satisfying? If you gave that description to somebody who had never tasted chocolate, would they be satisfied? Would they have that love for chocolate? How about if instead, if you took the piece of chocolate and you opened it up, you said, oh, okay, great, it's got some theobromine in it. Super. That's much better. It's a totally different experience. Knowing Christ's love. Mm, this is good. Knowing Christ's love is not just a theological process. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It is taste and see that the Lord is good. God is not something to be solved. He is to be experienced. And as Harold Honer put it in his commentary, we cannot comprehend the love of Christ because the comprehension of the love of Christ is beyond the capability of any human being. It is immeasurable, unfathomable. And yet, by the Spirit and through faith, we can experience Christ. We can know Christ. And you know what's amazing about that is the way, way Jesus talks about having the faith of a child as the way you can experience God's love for you? Somebody with dementia or Down syndrome can experience the love of Christ. You don't have to have 140 IQ to experience the love of Christ. It's almost the opposite. It's almost like even though you have 140 IQ, God still will let you know him. You just got to get that to not let that be in the way. Because when you see somebody that struggles mentally, either by debilitation or by birth, and yet they know Christ, they know a deeper joy, a deeper content than many of us do. God wants you to know and experience him deeply, relationally. He wants you to taste him and to pass him on to others. And you know, because we're made for relationship, it's actually in relationship, the way that Paul puts it in our thing here is together with all the saints. He wants us to know God's love for us, Christ's love for us, together with all the saints. That basically it's actually in relationship that we experience God as well and Christ's love for us and in relationship that we extend Christ's love to one another. And you see this, you see this in the way that a loving family member cares for another family member when they're sick. They're extending the love of Christ to them with their hands. It's how any of us, when we're down and struggling and have a best friend that comes and supports us, experience the love of Christ through their presence. We are not meant to do this figuring out Christ's love on our own. We're meant to be the hands and feet and voice of God to one another and to experience God in one another. Paul wants the Ephesians to know this, to know the love of Christ more and more and more. And you know what? It has implications for us. Let me just point up two 
before we end. One implication would be in our own prayer life. How do we often pray? Let's say, how do we pray for kids? When you pray for your kids, I, I pray that they would make the team, that they would pass the test, that they would have good friends, that they would not get drunk with alcohol on the weekend, that they would have a good attitude, they would get into college, that their entire life would be perfect. Those are our prayers for our kids. It's external, it's circumstantial, it's behavioral. If we were going to borrow from Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, our prayer for our own kids should be for them to know and experience the love of Christ for them. That's it. To know and experience the love of Christ for them. Sure, we want those other things to happen to them, but even if they don't, if they know and experience the love of Christ for them, that will be enough. That should then temper our prayers for everything, for the nation, for the sick, for our friends, for our family, for ourselves. And I don't mean that we shouldn't pray for externals, pray for elections or surgeries or job interviews. Yes, we should, but don't skip out on praying for the main need, to know Christ, to experience Christ, to feel and taste the love of Christ. And so my prayer should be this. I pray that you would heal my friend and that he would know Christ. I want both. But if one has to give, may he know Christ. May he experience God's love for him. That's it. I have a feeling that if we could get to this point, it would have an effect on our own contentment, don't you think? always striving and anxious, despairing and discontent. We're looking for the wrong solutions to meet our need. And we confuse circumstances like my feelings or my wants or my physical needs with spiritual and eternal needs. But Paul elsewhere in Philippians says, I have learned the secret of being content in all situations. And he talks about two different situations. Being content when I have plenty or when I'm hungry. When I have abundance or when I have need. And I think... I've got plenty of contentment when I have abundance. And he's suggesting that you need the same contentment when you're suffering as when you're well, when you have plenty as when you're hungry. You actually need the same contentment. It's not based on circumstances. It's based on something else. And I think it's his final petition in here that is the basis of his contentment. The end of verse 19 not just to know the love of Christ, but that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That double filled fullness means there is no place without God in you. No place in your life where there is not God. Full of God and you need nothing else. What I have or don't have matters less when I'm full of God. I'm less destroyed by my failures by being excluded, even my suffering. And I'm less fixated on winning or achieving or approval or my pleasure or my ease of life. It's almost like this. If I have health and success and family, but not Christ, I have nothing. Nothing that's truly lasting or filling. But if I have the love of Christ, if I am filled with God fully, and yet I have nothing else in this world, I have everything I ever really need. Much easier to say than to believe. <laughs> it's 
hard to believe and live in light of, which is why we pray for it. So let's pray for it. God, our Father, from whom everyone is made, we pray that by your Spirit empowering us, Christ dwelling in us by faith, we might be rooted and grounded in your love for us. And we might have strength together with one another to grasp how broad and wide and deep and long is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. This knowledge of God, this experience of God that surpasses understanding and lasts forever. And so may we too be filled with God this day. Amen.